Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Behind the Mic, a Vent music podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with artists across different music scenes in the UK and beyond. We talk all about their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. Everyone who knows me knows I love my disco, so any excuse to interview a disco artist on the podcast is something I will always happily snap up. In this episode, I'm checking in with Gavin, who's the lead singer of UK disco band Skeletons. We talk about Gavin organising school concerts in the school hall when he was 14 for charity, to taking it more seriously at university, potentially having record labels sniffing around them, and then starting Skeletons purely for fun after a period where Gavin fell out of love with music. We discuss the mental health impact that touring has had on the band's mental health and the social isolation that comes with that and Gavin's undiagnosed ADHD. We talk about how he's looking to get a diagnosis for his ADHD hopefully very soon. We talk about the COVID-19 lockdown and how that forced him to address a lot of issues related to that undiagnosed ADHD and anxiety and general reflections on his mental health he wasn't doing previously. We talk about how he's accessed support for his mental health in the years that have followed and how he's getting to a more stable and hopefully happy life with his partner and new daughter. So get yourself comfy and have a listen as I go Behind the Mic with Skeletons. Gav, welcome to Behind the Mic. Thank you so much for coming on the pod and talking to me. You have come round to my flat, so I appreciate the cycle over that you made. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm well, thanks. Yeah, I'm feeling pretty breezy. It's a sunny day. It's been a tiring week, but that's not uncommon. Overall, pretty good. Yeah, I'm feeling Excellent. good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. No worries, mate. And I've had a couple of solo disco artists on the pod before, and it's one of my favourite genres, but I'm really glad to have a, a fully blown disco funk soul band on the pod in the form of you and, and Skeletons. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm ready to start the show. Let's do it. Let's get to it. Let's start behind the mic as we always do by talking about your music journey, Gav. So tell me how your love affair with music started, maybe who were your favourite artists and idols growing up and when did you first start singing or playing instruments? Wow. Big question. The love affair with music that so many of us benefit from. Obviously, if you make music, you benefit from it even more than music fans, maybe, or maybe not. But thinking back to the start of my music journey, it was relatively simple. I was a teenager in the Libertines, Kasabian, Fratelli's kind of <laughs> The indie landfill era. indie era, I think it was called. Yeah, and <laughs> I used to religiously by enemy and my girlfriend at the time Laura who is now my wife and the mother of my beautiful daughter was a big CD buyer and we used to listen to CD Walkman's relentlessly you know that followed on from a bit of a different genre palette earlier in secondary school which mainly consisted of 50 Cent, Dr Dre and Eminem. (laughs) 
And those Everyone al- has their pop punk to a gangster rap transition. Sure. Yeah, I mean, those <laughs> albums were really, really important to a lot of angry young boys, weren't they? And then moved on to just being a completely dedicated, consistent, diehard indie kid. And my girlfriend, Laura, had a good CD collection and I used to borrow it and she would make copies of it for me and we used to download music on LimeWire and then (laughs) New Rave came which was basically the same low quality indie music low quality extremely popular indie music but with loads of synthesizers and dance beats. It's just like cut copy and people like that and exactly. Justice versus Simeon and... Yeah, I was really hooked on that and have stayed hooked on that ever since pretty much. Then later in my music journey more recently, I was a dedicated fan in the beginning. I used to buy NME, read it cover to cover, take the recommendations really seriously. And then I started a band and I was basically too lazy to learn the guitar properly. So I just played bar chords. And it was a bit like the Fratellis or the Libertines or a really weak clash. (laughs) And that went fairly well. A few people came to see it. There was a lad from my town who was in the Holloways called Bryn. And he brought the Holloways to play in our town. And we also got some guest lists to go and see them at Birmingham Academy when we were like 16. So that was really inspiring and encouraging, seeing people a little bit older than us that had gone really far with it. And they were based at Nambuka in Islington and they were in the chart. A lot of bands in the landfill indie moment or movement were in the chart. Mm. you know. And one of the really good bands then as well that I enjoyed was Friendly Fires. Oh, amazing. Seen them live. Yeah. yeah. And we now use a studio that they have stuff in and their kick drum's just there. So, <laughs> you know, when I was there, I was like, oh my God, it's Friendly Fires' kick drum. I'm not sure if they're using it much at the moment, but we felt quite good. Ed McFarlane was like my dancing idol. Like I modelled my dancing yeah, moves on dancer, Ed McFarlane. Eh? Yeah. 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 And then finally managed to get into a decent band much later and remained dedicated to music later as an artist earlier as a fan so that was the journey really I mean that was how it started Uh, there's been lots of other diversions and crossroads and different bits but Mm. that was the beginning I want to talk about your very early career because when we spoke off air you told me that you were putting on music nights for your secondary school as fundraisers for charities take me back to that period what was it like I imagine there was as many mistakes as there were very proud achievements actually that was really wildly successful almost immediately for two main reasons it it had a captive audience which was everybody at the school that wanted to go to a 14 plus gig (laughs) and so the big achievement was convincing the teachers that making money for Oxfam was worth letting it happen and it was in Litchfield in Staffordshire I was about 14 we immediately reinvested the money we did one for Oxfam and then we did another one that was really really successful again we gave loads of money to Oxfam and then we were encouraged by the parents of the most musically trained and organized member of the, the savvy band. ones yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were encouraged by his parents to buy a PA which we did so we gave a load of money to Oxfam and then we reinvested a load of money in a PA and then we were able to do gigs in pubs in the private function room that would let teenagers in. (laughs) And that was just 
amazing because having the PA was a win and it really attracted other bands with more fans than us basically <laughs> that was modeled on Ozzy Osbourne because there's the famous advert that he puts on a music shop or a rehearsal studio wall before he joins Black Sabbath which says singer with own PA <laughs> and he managed to join Black Sabbath almost solely because he had a PA rather than because of his musical ability and we were based in the mess uh, in the West Midlands, in the West Midlands, excuse me, as well. So I wouldn't be surprised, and I think maybe someone actually had that story in mind. Mm. And yes, yeah, so I was in a band with this guy called Jacko. I stayed in a band with him for many years afterwards uh, during the New Raven indie movement. And yeah, his dad said, give half of it to Oxfam and, and spend half of it on a PA. And then we spoke to the teachers that had let us organise it, and they thought that was a good idea. Mm. So it was really successful, but we had a huge stroke of luck and we were well guided mm. by friendly parents and mentors. You know, mm. we were strongly encouraged to pursue that idea to make more music and make it in a kind of self-driven way with some control over the gigs and owning the kit. We bought the PA from a studio that was closing down for a really good price and then we put on a load more gigs and yeah, it was really cool. Excellent. Let's fast forward to university now because you were in a band at uni and your bandmate that you're in your band with now, Ed, was DJing, I believe. Yeah. So what were your respective music journeys at that point? Well, my music journey is clouded in a bit of a haze. <laughs> <laughs> I think anybody who you ask about their university years... Barely remembers most nights out, let's has, be real. <laughs> ...has had some big party moments and been skint and ate beans on toast a lot. But... The music had continued on a pretty even upwards trajectory since organising the gigs when I was 14. So I think I got to uni when I was 18 and the band had been going that I was in then for about a year and a half. I kept it going with the people from the town I grew up in, despite moving to Bristol, which was a different city. And we had a manager based in London who we'd picked up from supporting an act in Tamworth. We were a sort of standard support band in Tamworth <laughs> at that time. <laughs> we did it a couple of times, and I suppose in retrospect we were quite successful because we played with Dan Massac and Scrooby's Pip. Wow, that then, takes me back. <laughs> and then we played with this band called Trash Fashion, who nobody remembers now, but their manager was looking for younger bands with potential and he took an interest in us and we basically signed up with him I don't think if we hadn't been signed up with that management I would have probably carried it on despite living in a different location to all of the members <laughs> so we you know brutally pig-headedly carried it on and there was a label who came in which was basically just a guy in a bedroom I'm still friends with him he, he's called Pete Carvel I've been on his podcast which is a lovely podcast about dance music and like much more esoteric dance music and breakbeat and stuff. He had a label called Gash Digital and he basically signed us off MySpace. So we had these things going on down in London and Ed I met through those things. His music career at that point was way more successful than mine. He had a remix on Radio 1. I don't know if it was Annie Matt then, it might have been a different presenter, Dance Anthems. He had a manager who booked him for a lot of DJ sets and 
he was developing a good knowledge and contacts of the sort of dance music scene, which he, he still has. Um, he, he doesn't call upon it particularly often. But yeah, so he remixed our track and then we ended up playing a few gigs together. And he had a bigger manager, better sets and probably a bigger following online. He was a prolific tweeter, like (laughs) thousands of tweets. And he was also in these forums. I think some of them were on Errol Alcan's website. Wow. Which were a really nice community of people, sort of a bit like Reddit. And he, through that, became really matey with lots of other huge producers. Reddit before Reddit, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was was a completely different era, you know. It Mm. It was a more innocent time with... The blog space era, wasn't it, really? Yeah. yeah. And sometimes the music that we were involved in at that time is called Blog House. Blog House, as I was going to say, yeah. Cut yeah. Copy and Justice versus Simeon yeah. and Hot Chip. All those kind of bands, I think, were kind of chucked into that label of Blog House, weren't they, Absolutely. to a certain degree? So yeah. that's the short answer to how I got connected with Ed. The super short answer is blog house yeah (laughs) and yeah he did a remix of our band and i was convinced it was the best thing that had ever had my voice on it so when the bass player left we asked him to be the bass player and he said no way (laughs) (laughs) then years later he moved into my flat and i was a little bit more surreptitious with it because i directly (laughs) outrightly asked him to be in a band with me before and he had point blank refused (laughs) he very much knows his own mind which is something i really love about ed you know he's my best mate he's my creative partner in skeletons he produced all the music he's produced all my best music as i just said and when he moved into my flat i started making some music of my own and then i would just probe him with a few questions about it (laughs) and i knew he couldn't resist schooling me until the point when eventually he just took over the production and started playing the <laughs> instruments. <laughs> I haven't done much production since. Tell me about Skeletons then. So how did it start? And you told me off air that it almost started at a point when you had maybe fallen almost out of love with music. So tell me how Skeletons reignited that spark and how did it bring you, as you said, back into the professional circuit by accident? Mm. Semi-professional circus. Semi-professional circus. (laughs) I I, I, I like to give my guests more credit. (laughs) Thanks, dude. No, I think Bloghouse and New Rave started getting a lot less attention in the media, but also the nature of making music in that scene, as I've alluded to a bit, changed. Some of the platforms were not the same. Mm. Some of the forums were not the same. And... The contact networks were just literally not the same. The guy who I had done those Oxfam gigs with, Oxfam gig, I think, half an Oxfam (laughs) gig, at the very beginning, he was at Leeds College of Music. So I went up there and crashed in his house after I finished university at Bristol and after Ed had said he didn't want to be in my previous band, The Robot Disaster. Fabulous name. (laughs) And... I went up to Leeds and was a bit miserable, to be honest, for a couple of years. I didn't have a lot of direction. And we started another band called Frenetics, which was really heavy. And it did okay. We played some gigs, but it didn't really do as well as the Robot Disaster. And 
more importantly than whether it did well, which I suppose is what this whole podcast is about, I wasn't feeling too great and my life wasn't progressing very well. I was on the dole in Leeds with housing benefit, paying my rent and working part-time as a typist at the council. There was a recession and I hadn't really decided what career I was going to do if music didn't work out. So it wasn't just a case of falling out of love with music. It was I, life. I, I it played was life music as well. throughout, yeah. Mm. yeah. And I was lackadaisically, unceremoniously kicked out of the music industry along with some huge bands because my band and my project wasn't even successful or big. You know, it was trying to follow in the footsteps of Landfill Indie, mm. which didn't last. It's made a bit of a comeback recently. Yeah, and my... a lot of nostalgic 20 year anniversary album tours of Block Party and people yeah, like that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's nice to see because you can see how much people actually enjoyed it at the mm. time. And it was a pleasure to be a part of it, even at the lower levels. But yeah, that, that's what happened, really. I went and kicked it in Leeds for a couple of years. And then once I got my act together about my life, I developed enough fortitude and stability in myself to pick the music back up again more seriously. But it's Ed, really, that probably elevated my music <laughs> to a semi-professional or professional level. Shout out to Ed. Shout yeah, out to Ed. shout out to Ed, definitely. You spoke there about the semi-professional circuit. And one question I always ask on Behind the Mic, Gav, is about the realities of the music industry and the realities of doing this that the audience probably don't ever know about, but the artists very much do and are ensconced in. So tell me about your experience here and, and what things could you talk about and the realities and everyday experiences of, of music, full-time or part-time, that have that mental health impact that the audience would never ever know, even your closest friends? Hmm. Well, the music industry that we participate in now is pretty much professional standard, but we're always tired and somewhat overwhelmed when we participate in it because we've got jobs and families and real lives, you know? And I think that's underappreciated. I shouldn't make out that that tension or challenge or problem only applies to people who do both because I think that a lot of people forget the antisocial nature of being a musician mm. or a DJ, it's at night, it's, it's on weekends, the road. Yeah. It can really take you away from standard support networks. Mm -hmm. And it's getting better and better, but during the phase that I've described to you in response to the earlier questions, there was a lot of drugs and bad behaviour and raw ambition mm. and celebrity culture bitchiness yeah it plays Even it in plays into yeah there was. it plays into that element of what's the line between narcissism that you need to believe that you'll be able to make it which every musician probably needs otherwise they won't pursue it and the narcissism that actually just breeds self-indulgence and horrific behavior and transactional relationships that you see the kind of in like los angeles for a stereotypical example maybe yeah and so i have really mixed feelings about the first act of my like music autobiography so far and more recently when I came to the same kind of contexts without loads of partying and loads of pressure to maybe get signed or do a massive album 
or support someone huge on a stadium tour. When I came to it just a bit frazzled from doing a nice office day job and, you know, remembering to ring my mum and stuff like that, it was a lot easier, but still hard. And I think that it's easy for people to look at musicians who are successful and forget the antisocial bit of it, the hours, mm. the strain, the travel. And then it's also really easy to look at, you know, your semi-professional, your amateur musicians and forget that to take your tuba to a recital, like even to be in a big band or an orchestra or something at weekends is tiring and expensive. And it's a lot on top of getting by. Talk to me about live performance now and producing. So what has been, for my listeners, a mistake that you've made in this set? Or maybe a story where it's been a very bad set and what have you learned from it? And importantly as well, what has been the best show that you've done for your mental health? Could I take it in reverse order? Of course you can. <laughs> I'd like to go with the positive one first, yeah. you know, especially as the pandemic was very weird for skeletons, given that we had done a lot of London gigs and some okay venues and some cool supports, but we had just decided to only accept gigs over 150 capacity. Mm -hmm. So we just agreed amongst ourselves that we wouldn't play anything smaller than that, which demonstrates that before the pandemic, loads of our gigs were pubs. Yeah. They were small events. And then... We decided to pursue bigger gigs only and then gigs were temporarily paused and then during the pandemic we started to get on BBC Introducing and we started to get to play festivals and it was just really quite different level of gigs and in what sense credibility they were bigger with like signed artists and you know we drove into festival on Alex James's farm in the Cotswolds. Oh, wow. And the gig had been postponed for a year because when we were first offered it, this is a fairly interesting story, actually. I'll make this the answer. So I was in Vietnam on holiday when the pandemic struck and I actually got an email. I was sitting in the departure lounge at Hanoi. I'd taken one flight and then I was changing to the flight back to London. And we were starting to read about coronavirus and I was like freaked out. I began to think I wouldn't be going to the office when I landed because I was landing at 6am but I hadn't taken the day off because I needed them for skeletons, you know, so I was going to go straight into work and just be shattered. <laughs> and then we saw a load of people who were about 50 plus who had been emptied off a cruise ship and they were just deposited in the departure lounge. And we began to think, they don't look like they've voluntarily left Vietnam. Well, they were talking about how they weren't ever expecting to fly anywhere from Hanoi. They were on a completely different holiday. And so it began to strike us how serious the pandemic was going to be. I took my phone out of my pocket and I'd been offered a gig on Alex from Blur's Cheese Farm by <laughs> BBC Introducing. And I was like, oh my God, you know... This is the pinnacle, even though it's a small stage, we can build from this. And I, I was saying to my Mrs. Laurie, you know, oh, doesn't it just show all of the dedication can kind of pay off? This will be amazing. You know, and she was so happy for me. And we agreed she would come and support me and, and, and we could invite family. And we just thought, amazing. Then that was postponed. 
for a long time throughout the pandemic. And when it finally happened, me and Ed drove my wife Laura's Mini into the car park. We got to go through the artist's entrance. You know, we drove past a massive queue of cars that we would normally be in (laughs) as fans. And then we just drove in and nobody knew what they were doing because coronavirus had sort of demolished the capability of the festival industry. So loads of really confused stewards who just weren't used to doing their job very well. One of them just waved vaguely to the right and we just drove in and we just saw this massive coach with Nile Rogers written on the front of it. <laughs> so we just parked next to it. You know? <laughs> and this, another guy in a jacket like sprinted over and was like, your mini for the BBC introducing stage does not belong here. And we just played it all innocent. And we were like, one of your colleagues waved us over here. And obviously we were having a laugh and taking the piss, but that was a high, high following the low, low of, you know, for a year waiting for that to happen with everything cancelled. We had another gig cancelled, which was, we were due to be mentored by DJ Yoda to create a special show for Wilton's Music Hall, Mm -hmm. which is a grade two star listed 400 capacity music hall they invited us to rehearse there in advance and he was going to come down and sort of give us feedback on our show and dj yoda's obviously a pioneer of audio visual music sets Mm -hmm. probably the originator of audio visual music sets at festivals so we're massively hyped about that and when the pandemic struck it it just got cancelled so our biggest ever gigs were cancelled but then when we reached them it was like whoa that's the story really i mean the highest high and the lowest low have been during recent times Mm. and it's been a like a crazy journey recently man because we got that almost because coronavirus left us on our laptops so much that the music was elevated And we weren't leaving the house all the time. The writing got better. The production got better. The promotion online got better. Then when we came back to gigging, we came out the blocks hard. And it Mm. was like, Skeletons is a real band now. Mm. You know, we're on stages in front of hundreds of people. Like, there's people that have come because they actually have seen us on the lineup and they actually want to see us. Before that, it was just above a man and his dog, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's a buzz, man. And you can probably tell from how much I'm talking how I'm talking like it's making me really happy right now Mm. and that's just something to be extremely grateful for Mm. yeah before we talk about issues in the industry I've got two questions left on this part mate so the first one is what does the stage provide for you and your mental health this question caught my eye when when you said the information over before the podcast recording actually peace like real peace of mind you know as a person who is performative and loud and hyperactive and an overthinker with a need to be creative. The stage is a sanctuary. Um, The same way that every choir I've been in, every collaborative music thing I've been in was one of the best, if not the best opportunity for me to be myself in relation to others. So there's like this personal thing where I feel free and I feel honest and I feel 
permitted to give as much energy and creativity out towards the world as I want to all the time. Unfortunately, most of the time when I'm not performing and I'm not on stage, I feel pretty bound by other structures Mm. like of social convention or professional work or even family duties, everything, Mm. how you're supposed to relate to therapy, you know, everything Mm. is more constrictive to me as I've experienced it than performing. So that's the answer. You know, it's pretty much my favourite thing to do like my favorite place on earth to, mm. to be a performer to do performance a place of serenity amongst chaos when maybe your mind is creating that chaos so it's kind of almost interacting in in tandem would that be a fair assessment I, th- that sounds pretty fair to me i think another way you could frame it is most people as i hear it explained to me would find being the center of attention jarring (laughs) yeah extremely scary and nerve-wracking and disruptive to their being whereas i'm the other way around it's it's inverse for me Mm. it's it's everything else that's typically considered more normal or more calm everything else jars a bit with me yeah i hear you to be honest so yeah i think that's right yeah it's just a a real sort of counterpoint to a lot of the other weirdness i feel in my world and then which outlet out of producing songwriting singing or playing instruments has the biggest impact on your mental health cool question yeah i nearly answered something linked to this for the highest high and the lowest Mm. low actually because you said what was the best show or something Mm. but i had terrible trouble recording for about the first 60% of my entire music career, you know, and creative journey, I only managed to get into recording and singing performance in a studio context in the past two to three years, really. And I think that that was a really big kind of omission or error. It was difficult. I struggled with how... It's not really based in a group, a large group. It's a bit more individual recording in studios. And I found it built a lot more internal mental pressure on me about singing. So I could sing really well, like in an ensemble or a choir or in a band on stage after, you know, a couple of beers. But in the studio, it it felt really high pressure. So yeah, that's really changed and I've begun to actually really enjoy production and recording and writing a lot more recently. With writing, it also changed a lot in that at the beginning, I would write things and it was almost stream of consciousness and I I didn't really know why I'd written it or where it had come from. When I listened to it back, I would feel like it was very accurate representation of me emotionally but that would actually make me feel a little bit ashamed because a lot of it was about just partying really hard and a lot of it was quite cocky and arrogant and self-centered whereas again in the past two or three years it's probably just a maturity thing and and being older and having more life experience in the past two or three years I'm a lot more considered when I write and I like try to have 
a certain narrative and I actually try to represent a certain part of me in a certain song. So over time, everything's become a lot more ordered. But in the early days, both recording and writing were quite sort of, yeah, they were in a bit of a mess in my head. I used to be quite surprised sometimes how I'd actually managed to do it. Like after I had made music, it didn't feel like I had done it. It felt like it had almost just cascaded out of me involuntarily or passively. But now I actually try to do certain things with music, mainly fun things and <laughs> optimistic things and like happy things. And that's going all right. You know, that's really cool. It's, it's nice to actually experience making the music firsthand rather than feel detached from it. I want to talk about the issues in the industry that we discussed. So you've already covered touring. So the next one that you wanted to bring up is the infrastructure of the music industry and how at times you've struggled to navigate it. And a term that you used that you struggled with was something called oppositional defiance. So can you explain what that term is for the listeners and this topic and your struggles with it through a mental health lens? Yeah, I think I can try. (laughs) Um, Oppositional defiance is similar to when a small child just says no when you try and stop them doing something almost as if it's a reflex and I'm not a mental health expert I've experienced some fairly mild mental health challenges but they have shaped my life a great deal one of them is that I struggle and have struggled throughout my life really to respect and collaborate well with authority figures but in the moment that often expresses itself just as disagreeing with what's being pitched to me for argument's sake and not because you genuinely do disagree with the direction or is it a bit of both it's such a gut reflex that i will disagree with someone before i've made my mind up and often it's clouded my collaborations or relationships with people so much that I never got to find out Mm. whether they were suggesting something worthwhile to me or not. Because it can poison the atmosphere between you and others. It has potential to be toxic. There's probably a streak of narcissism in there as well. (laughs) You mentioned narcissism and how a lot of musicians benefit from some narcissism earlier. I think you mentioned that briefly earlier. Narcissism cuts both ways. Of course. And you can take advantage of some narcissistic traits especially as a lead singer (laughs) and bands are often led by a a real like direct ambitious tenacious pitbull metaphorically won't let stuff go person who is a little bit psychopathic and in the best way and, and a bit of a narcissist and that's really important sometimes to propel groups forward because the other ones, the other members might not have the energy to do that. They might just want to play and perform and leave the rest of it to that person. I think actually the best groups consist of a range of personality types. Mm. So you almost need one of those p- people. And the best possible formulation for a band is one of those people and a couple of other people or more who are pretty different. If they can get along with each other despite those differences, it that's when I think you get something really special. But yeah, oppositional defiance just 
screwed me over with people, promoters, management. And then it also gave me a bit of a, a shame complex because I would sometimes do it, go back over it in my head and then drink and party to cope with the, the depression and shame of having put a foot wrong and, and shot myself in the foot in relation to my ambition and my chance to become a more famous, a successful, well-known musician. So yeah, it's affected me in a lot of ways. I probably also convinced myself that I was against certain approaches to music unnecessarily through this hair trigger, knee jerk negativity that I sometimes react with to things verbally with people and mentally inside my own head. Another issue that you want to discuss was work-life balance. And you've kind of already brought up a little bit, but you've alluded to the fact that, you know, you started a family in the last couple of years. You're married now with a one and a half year old daughter. So how has she and how have your wife changed your attitude to life, music and managing it all? Laura's not changed my attitude to live music much over the years because I was desperate to be into live music when I met her at 17 so it's always been part of the package she's got on the train yeah 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 yeah. and that's beautiful really to be supported so consistently through some of my oppositional defiance though I'm reluctant to admit it I've ignored advice from those around me at times which I should have taken about being more selective you know pursuing better opportunities rather than just seeking to perform pretty much anywhere, anytime, you know? My work-life balance, for example, was pretty shot when I was in Hackney Community Gospel Choir and in Skeletons and sort of making the T-shirts for the Gospel Choir and playing a bit of a leadership role within that alongside the main coordinator and working, mm. you know, and Something's got to my give. little brother's yeah. DJ career, you know, and all that stuff. Because it was too much. So I've never been picky due to my strong passion for performance and live music. But these days, despite the fatigue we have to experience as full-time employed people with a band that in a lot of spheres operates at the same standard as bands on a record label who have a really good merch revenue, who are waking up on Monday morning to go to a cafe to log on to their laptop to manage that project and monetize that project. We play alongside those acts at festivals and stuff and we intend to continue despite that being very tiring because, you know, we used to rehearse, for example, every Friday from 9pm to midnight. It's also very energizing and because I used to have some issues with substances, it's also played a big mental health role in my life through substitution. So it literally takes up energy, money and time that I used to spend negatively on late nights, substances, alcohol, rolling with the wrong crowd. Mm. And due to that, it's a bargain I'm comfortable with. Would I recommend it? It really depends what type of person you are. Yeah, I was going to say. If you're going to get enough from it to make you so happy when you get back to your nearest and dearest that it outweighs the disbenefits of being tired and stressed 
and you know busy then yeah pursue a passion project to the nth degree mm. i mean isn't that what you do pretty much yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> i think if you're the right type of person that joy can make you so much better to be around yes. when you're around everyone else and this doesn't feel like work to me this feels like me yeah. helping people even though it's a lot of work <laughs> Well, they say you won't work a day in your life if you love what you do. Exactly. No passion, no point, as so, uh, yeah. I hear on another podcast. And they're called passion projects yeah, for a reason. They are. But I think for the sake of your friends and family, you have to take this bargain where you become buoyed up by it more than it damages you. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Let's reflect then on this music journey and skeleton. So what have both of them, Gav, taught you about yourself ed and will from skeletons wow what a question well they're my best friends you know i mean they're my best friends and they're you know they're like brothers to me there's not much they haven't taught me about <laughs> almost everything i'm sharing with you here they helped me learn and they probably above all else have taught me how important perseverance and integrity are more important than prestige. And I think I learned that from Ed and Will, really, because what they did with me and music was just hung around, being nice, and that's it. And through their good company and support and partnership making music, I gained confidence that music would always be in my life. So weirdly, they helped me adopt a more positive attitude to the music, really. It became and has become a more run-of-the-mill presence in my life, like supporting a football team, like having a season ticket to a football team or or being the treasurer of a badminton club. Mm. But doing the music in that kind of way, with that kind of model, it doesn't take away any of the seriousness or the ambition in the project. But what they really helped me with was to sort of squeeze as much mental health benefit out of it as possible by sort of taking all the controversy away and letting it just become a nice, pleasant consistent thing that you just often do and get pleasure from with your friends and I think that that's what you see in the best bands and that's one of the big reasons that a lot of people love that everyone loves a good old band don't they like <laughs> I actually personally think they're so much more interesting and compelling than solo artists and DJs sorry because they have chemistry and the standard compliment, which I always love to get and I always give out if it's deserved, is you look like you enjoy yourself together so much. I feel it's the biggest... It's always obvious as well. Mm. You can't fake it. No. And it's, it's the biggest, most important compliment you can pay a band because it links to this reason that bands have existed like almost since the Beatles in that three to six, maybe maximum 10 person format. There's something that's really compelling about the chemistry between the people. 
and about seeing them enjoy playing and making music together as a mini social event. And that's really a common positive that people in bands experience. But that's what Ed and Will gave to me. They just stuck around with me. And once we found that, oh man, you know, we stuck with it because it feels so good. And then other people see you, they see it making you feel good. It makes them feel good too. And they call it out and you're like, yeah, I feel amazing. <laughs> you know, so yeah, they just helped me reposition music in my life so that I could get that feeling nice, nice and often, you know, and carry it on and keep it going. We've talked all about skeletons and your music journey, Gav. I want to go behind the mic and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Want me back to early life, teenage years and Looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Gav we meet here? Earlier in my life, I had a lot of energy. I applied it to music, you know, I applied it to girlfriends, I applied it to whatever was worrying me. But I was nauseous and I used to vomit a lot. There wasn't so much, even, you know, half a generation back, there wasn't so much discussion and vocabulary around mental health. So I didn't realise until later I was probably struggling with some mental health issues. In general, I prefer not to frame mental health diversity negatively. So I don't really like disorder or, you know, I don't know. There's lots of terms which diagnose mental health issues exclusively if they cause you suffering or mm -hmm. interfere with carrying out what are considered normal tasks but I did probably struggle with some normal stuff because I used to smoke loads and loads of weed just to feel comfortable in normal social settings as soon as I could access it and mm. I was old enough and in retrospect that was probably self-medicating some mental mm. health issues and I believe a lot of my social circle from that time who did that with me probably were and some maybe still are. Covid-19 I want to talk about first because all the lockdowns were incredibly hard for you Gav and you said you became fractured by the lockdown was the word you use however it also turned out to be a blessing for you too and the trigger for you realising a lot of things about yourself. So explain that juxtaposition for me. Well, the biggest blessing was my daughter Daisy, is my <laughs> daughter Daisy, you know, who's who's here now, alive and kicking, and that's it. That was the biggest blessing. I personally, mentally got fractured by a range of things. I struggled with homeworking. I struggled with isolation. Lots of the activities and normalities that were cut off, we seem to end up forced into the polar opposite of existing in ways that I relied on. I relied on meeting up with people face to face and hearing them laugh at my jokes and performing for them in lots of different contexts. In my day job at Transport for London and for the Mayor of London, I'm a royally chartered town planner. And I really enjoy it. And I enjoy training people, mentoring young people. My favourite part of work is always 
you know, sort of set piece moments like big meetings and presentations, which is that's your time to perform. Similar yeah. to being on stage <laughs> or giving a lecture to university students or something like that. So I also do a lot of travel for my work, which kind of mirrors or shadows touring. And I'm seeing the pattern here. <laughs> I began to realise that I had created these crutches in my life subconsciously, but they were the rungs of the ladder that was helping me climb up each day. And then the pandemic just like felt full of snakes. You know? <laughs> like, it was just like, whoa. Your dice wasn't working anymore. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was in a different board game. Uh, they say different board game, don't they? But I didn't know what board game I was playing, you know. I got, I got panicky, I got confused. And, and then something I still struggle with a bit now is just extreme suspicion that something will be cancelled at the last minute. Mm. And that intersected really badly with skeletons, which I care deeply about and have worked very hard on. I underplay it a bit, you know, having discussed my entire journey here now, obviously if you go from the school theatre charging people a pound in a hat to make money for Oxfam to pulling up next to Nar Rogers's bus. Even if you're not remotely famous or anything, you're absolutely hyped about how far you've come. <laughs> As you would be. That's I am. Yeah. And so that journey is very, very good for me to have experienced and I've really, really enjoyed it. So to have that paused and disrupted was heartbreaking I was really heartbroken and it severely affected me then amazing bookings started coming in in between I think the second and third lockdowns and they were really difficult to organize logistically because we had to do loads of tests and things like that and that they were very much affected by an atmosphere of paranoia and management about the pandemic so I got a bit difficult with the rest of the band at times which which I'm not proud of and I realized now I was just experiencing extreme anxiety that it would all come crashing down it would all yeah. come crashing down and I cared so much about having reached the pinnacle so far I mean I want to go to Glastonbury like there's further to go don't get <laughs> me wrong but I'd reached the pinnacle so far of my life's journey to become a cool musician and then it was just disrupted. The rug was pulled out from under it. And when it came back, I was very anxious and panicky and I was nervous. You know, every time the rest of the band did their lateral flow tests, I was in pieces because I was just convinced one of them was going to come up with the worst possible result that we couldn't play. And tragically, which is wrong and bad, I probably was not, really caring about their health if they had coronavirus like I was prioritizing whether or not I would get to play a gig mm. you know which is a little bit selfish and a little bit uncool a lot a lot selfish and uncool but that just shows you you know I had sort of lost a bit of perspective really because I was so excited to get back on stage and get to these big opportunities that I had worked for my entire life so yeah it fractured me and um, I also sort of had panic attacks and I ended up babbling, walking around Islington, just babbling to myself. You know, like I was, I was convinced that my entire life 
you know, my household, my marriage, my daughter was not quite right for me. And, you know, I, I became like somebody who you see talking to themselves at the bus stop because they've got significant mental health issues. Luckily, that was quite temporary for me. And I bounced back pretty quickly and pretty strongly. But I don't think that would have happened to me if coronavirus hadn't. Whilst you were doing some of that babbling, maybe before it, or maybe afterwards, you scribbled a lot of these notes down that you were having in your head and you thought you could maybe turn it into an album but it didn't turn out to be the best choice or the right choice what did you use those notes for in the end out of interest just self-reflection you know and I guess those notes not becoming songs helped me start to understand and remember the importance of journaling to get your thoughts and feelings out so I took up the habit of Sometimes when I'm overwhelmed by anxiety or I'm getting super oppositional about somebody in my head or I'm otherwise paranoid and overwhelmed, I got in the habit of just splurging it all out on paper. And these days I quite often do that and then do nothing. The, the paper goes nowhere. The voice note, the email, I email myself and delete <laughs> it. I email myself. A That's load a, new of, one. a tornado of like mentally aggressive pros, yeah. pros. <laughs> and then I just think, my oh God, I hope no one ever sees this. <laughs> yeah, Google can do a number on me if they ever want to. It can make me look like a serial killer. But then I just archive it or delete it, and it mm. goes nowhere. I guess part of my development in mental health terms is I used to actually send stuff like that to my manager. Oh, right. So, you know, I'm thoroughly responsible for how long it's taken me to get where I've got. Yeah. So the answer to that stuff I scribbled out in the middle of the pandemic was a lot of it was coming from dreams. And, and when I explained it to the rest of the band, they were just utterly confused and they just didn't really <laughs> understand it. And it became clear immediately it was part of my personal mental health journey. Mm. So it didn't go anywhere. And yeah, in retrospect, I was just very freaked out. Final thing to say, which is quite interesting, I think, is part of my reason for being freaked out was we had just finished and toured an EP called Apocalypse Wow, which was about the end of the world. And so when the pandemic struck... You thought it was some big foreshadowing. I was like, oh my God, you know, I'm telepathic. This is the end of the world. And I said, I said to Laura who often calms me down when I'm a bit melodramatic. I wasn't going too over the top about it, but I said, even if I'm not telepathic and I haven't predicted the end of the world with an EP, releasing and touring and making a shed load of visuals for a very apocalyptic EP about global consciousness and about how something can affect all of us worldwide and we should all tackle it together just before a pandemic strikes is very weird to experience it was naturally quite fracturing mm. so that's that set me off you know mm. and i and i wrote some stuff there was a story that you told me off air where you eventually had to use your wife's parents dog to calm you down was that the most difficult point of this period for your mental health yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, th I think lockdown, lockdown one, and it was it was before my daughter was conceived. So, 
we didn't even have that to look forward to then. Mm. And it wasn't just me that benefited from Ted, God rest his soul. He has since passed on. Oh, no. <laughs> it wasn't just me that benefited from him as a therapy dog. It, it was also Laura who was stuck alone with me. God helper or Ted helper, <laughs> as it went. He came into our lives properly for the first time because when he was younger he was Laura's dog but then he went to live with her parents and didn't move to London it's so nice to just talk about a dog in a respectful (laughs) way and give credit to the significant role that dogs can play in people's (laughs) lives Dogs can be so good for mental health, man. They can save people's lives, bro. Have people talked about dogs on the podcast before? A couple, yeah. I I interviewed a really amazing woman who's involuntarily childless. Right. And her dog is basically like her child. Mm. And she talked a lot about Lily and how Lily is very much her child in a lot of ways and how when she lost a previous dog, she came really close to taking her own life. So I know, yeah, all too well the power of dogs for sure. Brilliant. Yeah, and isn't that great that she was open and self-aware enough to share the sheer power of her Mm, dog yeah yeah. and that role in her life so this dog ted god rest his soul was my wife laura's dog when she lived in manchester at university then she couldn't bring him to london when she moved in with me so he went to her parents house and then we got him back in lockdown one because she was isolated from her family alone with me and i was struggling And he just calmed me down. It went from daily crying and being quite cold with my partner to pretty breezy. I felt cool. You know, I I was like, we'll just get through it. You know, I I became sort of keep calm and carry on like everyone else. And that dog was instrumental. I feel the dog was instrumental. Yeah, he really did me a service. And obviously... He didn't understand he was doing that. But I will be eternally grateful to Ted for that. And again, it was just serendipitous. Like ending up doing an apocalyptic record and then something apocalyptic happening. He was available and I learned from him when I needed that in my life, how instrumental in good mental health pets can be. And I now have a dog because of that experience, really, which is a dog called Dougal, who's exactly the same breed. He looks pretty much identical. And <laughs> Ted sadly passed on, but he's he's a great replacement. Hmm. So, yeah, um, shout out dogs, basically. Yeah, shout out dogs. <laughs> you spoke earlier in the pod, mate, about not wanting to define your mental health by terms like disorder and things like that. However... You've been reflecting on your mental health for the last couple of years and you believe, if I'm right in saying, you might have some form of undiagnosed ADHD. Mm. You still have no formal diagnosis for it yet. So tell me and the listeners why you think you may have it, maybe some of the symptoms and I guess your reflections on how you came to that conclusion. Got to say two things first. It's a diversity, not a disability. I love that catchphrase the motto from Mm. the US ADD positivity movement and secondly diagnosed people certainly deserve to lead what is appropriate Mm -hmm. in terms of identifying as self-diagnosing 
ADHD. So my little brother is ADHD, diagnosed. That's one of the key reasons I'm a suspect ADHD. I believe I was just sort of missed when I was in school. A lot of people were, I think. Yeah. And a lot of people were. From guests that I've spoken to who have ADHD and the experiences they've had in school, I think like a generation, I think, was almost missed. Yeah, and I'm just a little older than him and it was not quite as out there when I was younger and so I'd, I wasn't ever formally assessed or anything. I'm also lucky that I'm pretty intelligent. I've always had good grades. I've, I've always excelled, which I think tends to detract from any mental health diagnoses that you could apply to someone. It's a mask, would you say? In, no. to, some, to some extent, or it, it enables you to get through when perhaps other kids who were intelligent but the ADHD might have made them be seen by teachers as disruptive and then that would have a knock-on effect on academia. Do you think that was at play or not? Well, I actually think there's there's a bit of prejudice against kids with bad grades or and poor Oh no, 100%, kids. that's and my point. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So I think they get investigated like they're sort of looking for a brush to tar them with and it's often a diagnosis such as ADHD, whereas more privileged and, you know, academic kids are just not investigated. And yeah, I can do really good masking. I feel myself in social situations that I'm not comfortable with outwardly presenting as perfectly comfortable. It takes a toll on me, you know, sometimes afterwards I have to have a sleep or write a song. <laughs> so, you need to vent, mate, you need to vent. Exactly, you need to get vent, it out. that's why we're here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I mean, it's, it's really nice to vent. Returning to ADHD, one of the symptoms of ADHD that is sometimes used in the diagnostic framework is being tangential, which I definitely am. I go off the topic, I'm hyperactive. I just uh, tick a lot of the boxes. So when I um, started to look at it more closely... A therapist who I had a lot of sessions with, a lot of sessions, I think 100 hours. Maybe it wasn't 100 hours, maybe it was like 40. Exaggerations <laughs> come on ADHD. <laughs> it was a lot of hours. It was more than enough hours to believe that this person could say something revealing and informed about me. And I asked her if she thought I might be autistic because I saw a TV show called Love on the Spectrum and I felt quite a strong affinity with some of the people on this reality show who were dating through autism challenges, a lot of them were somewhat mentally impaired by society standards. But what really struck me about it was some of them were high achievers. Very that, high functioning. Yeah. As well. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of caught me by surprise. And the then spectrum it, of it. Yeah. And then it broke through this thing that we've been talking about, this normalised social prejudice that, you don't have mental health challenges if you're a high achiever, which right. I do think is still really pervasive in UK society, especially amongst the older ages. And then with my brother being formally diagnosed as ADHD, I put myself on the NHS waiting list, which I'm now on. So I may one day get a diagnosis, but at the moment I'm quite comfortable with my belief that I probably am. I just have to do that in a way that acknowledges the leadership role of people who have got that diagnosis to, if they so wish, reject me from that community. 
And the reason that I mention it is my brother doesn't want me to self-identify mm. as ADHD without a formal diagnosis. Mm. So it's been quite interesting with him. I think he probably sees the stigma as well because there might be people who do abuse that and self-identify and there might be people who sense of self-identify and give people who are diagnosed about i don't know i'm trying to, i'm just trying to think of it in his head in regards to responsibility but i'm sure he appreciates the way that you speak about it and the way you articulate it as well yeah he did me a really big favor by just saying point blank you know i don't think that's cool what i did when i began to have the suspicion about myself was i went for lunch with a number of people Last time I cycled to this part of London was to meet somebody who's been diagnosed as ADHD since school. Had a really nice lunch. Had lunch with someone who's a high-functioning autistic. I had one session with a a counsellor who explained to me that you can really easily mask and exist in society with what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. But I just don't know. I don't, I'm not at the conclusion point on what I'm talking about to you yet. Mm-hmm. It's part of my journey now, you know, and it's part of my mental health journey. What really was cool about it was starting to learn from these people. What did you learn? Let yourself be yourself. <laughs> <laughs> don't hate yourself, you know. A couple of them said things about the diagnosis and had quite strong views on it. Like the autistic guy said, again, pretty point blank. He said, it's, it's okay for you to self-identify while you wait for a diagnosis. But it was crystal clear from his attitude and his, you know, his guidance to me that he did not think it was cool to not go for a formal diagnosis, Mm. which I found interesting. But then the point blankness of these people is because they were and are people who have got cool with being like that. And that was why I went to ask them for advice. And and some of them were recommended to me by people in their circle. And they said, look, I know someone who's got this issue that you think you might have. And they're just smashing it and they're happy and they're cool with it. And they found a way to live without being upset or worried or, or ashamed and depressed. Let's hope you get there eventually, mate, and fingers crossed for that diagnosis or closure, I should say, at some point. I want to come back to music because when we spoke off air, you were very keen to wonder aloud and pontificate maybe about how perhaps bands or groups or entities or or parts of music can attract people with neurodiversity or with ADHD or ADD. Can you just expand on that for me? Of course. I've begun to believe that most celebrity things, including (laughs) sport, involve large groups of more neurotypical people watching outlier neurodiverse people who are exploiting the special, amazing potential and capability of their brain and channeling it to be amazing at something. That hyper-focused superpower sort of thing. That's what I believe now. I believe that Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, their intensity probably comes from being quite an outlier in the neurodiversity spectrum in some helpful way for their excellence. And music is just beautiful for neurodiverse people because it's a really good outlet, it's a really good place to channel your energy. You've got to repeatedly rehearse to get good. 
you have to do pattern formation use a strong sometimes strangely functioning but consistently strangely functioning in the same way kind of memory and all of these cultural and artistic pursuits like even people that write plays people that are incredible mimics actors like the guy who played freddie mercury in the queen movie you just begin to notice when you think about it through the lens of neurodiversity if my grand theory might be correct could easily be wrong but you just begin to notice that the things they're bringing to the table for everyone else to marvel at and enjoy are just really niche and rare and weird and so i don't see these issues as disorders because i think that there are lots of people who have just exploited them to the max in the best possible way they're just differences exactly and i think that those people are some of the world's biggest ever inspirations and worth watching figures in society and history mm. and you... that that's my theory that's that's put a big part of how i've coped with it mm. is like actually the big set of normal quote-unquote normal people like more closer to the mean average people linear thinkers or whatever i've begun to believe that they actually really enjoy having some of these eccentric special like really good at one thing and really terrible at seven other more run-of-the-mill things they really benefit from that and they need that to kind of like be a contrast to them and like they enjoy watching it and looking at it and that's where loads of the best music sport culture art comes from now mm. i believe Sorry, I now believe that. Mm. I believe it's always come from Well, you look at someone like Lowell Carner, who's really open about his ADHD and is an advocate for greater awareness and breaking down stigmas. And, you know, he said that music was a way for him to channel it. So who yeah. knows how many other musicians are able to channel what they believe is their superpower for, that, that they can hyper-focus through music and they can hyper-focus through the ADHD. So I think what will come to pass soon is when the stigma breaks down, like you said, there might well be more musicians coming out and saying, well, this is how I channel it. And who knows, maybe that'll make for a, a better mental health conversation as a result. Well, rappers are the biggest inspiration, really, to like, you know... You look at their notepads for how they write I mean, lyrics and it's stuff. It's all about yeah. language processing with rappers. And yeah, and, yeah I think they're a, a fantastic example of that. That's absolutely right. And Laurel Karner's brilliant. Mm. If more rappers said stuff like Laurel Karner more openly then more young people would feel comfortable to vent mm. and to examine themselves in a positive way. You don't want to get too caught up in it, but to just examine themselves in a positive way and think, how do I make the most of this? And hopefully the education system begins to change in a positive way to accommodate them more and maybe not isolate them. Yeah, because it would be great if people like Laurel Karner and, you know, maybe I... Law Connor and I, but I would say me to a lesser extent, I'm a lot less talented. Don't you know, say that, mate. <laughs> it would be great if people like that didn't feel marked or like there were negative expectations and prejudices around their mental health. Yeah, 100% agree. Let's reflect then on this mental health journey, Gav. So given what you've been through, A, what has it taught you about yourself? And B, if you could go back and talk to that Gavin who was becoming fractured by the lockdown or the Gavin who needed to be calmed down by Ted, God rest his soul, the therapy dog. What would you say to him, knowing what you do now? 
Big pause, sorry. Big pause, big question. I would say talk to yourself, but not too much. But tell the truth and then do something about it. And I would also say be gracious to others when they don't understand what's going on with you, to be honest. Because my issues have at times caused me to be rude or arrogant or narcissistic or unkind. That's never cool. So those are the things I would say to myself. What I'm finding these days is I'm able to self-reflect. I'm able to look internally, briefly have a quick check and then just do a bit of fine tuning, recalibration of life's basics, exercise, creativity, social, sleep. I'm finding that with acknowledgement and openness and actually stepping up to honesty internally and externally with myself and others about having mental health issues. Having done that, I'm just able to cope with the mental health issues a lot better. Like my life is better. So that's what I'd say. And I'd say it to my little brothers, you know, I'd say it to anyone I speak to who is feeling a sense of struggle that they can't quite pin down. It does actually take some introspection. I heard this um, watercolour landscape artist, I can't remember his name, he's super famous. But anyway, I remember him saying in an interview I watched on television, nature is very beautiful, but you do actually have to look at it. And there is a way to engage with all of this new movement around openness with mental health without actually being honest and doing some introspection and self-talk about your own issues. Mm. And addressing the stigma. There's a lot of general talk, but yeah. we actually address it. And I see this a lot when it comes to sort of other podcasts and other outlets, when they talk about mental health. There's a lot of general talk, but when it actually comes to addressing the stigma, they sort of dance around it. I'm like, no, the point of all of us in this space is to A, talk about it, yes, and B, like you've said really well, follow through with action as well as words, but yeah. actually get to the heart of the stigma. Yeah, the stigma is nasty and still around. I have struggled a lot in my life because I didn't feel comfortable to share my experience and I was scared I would be judged and I locked stuff up inside myself, coped with drugs and alcohol and smoking and poor sleep and addiction to work study whatever would distract me from my pain and the stigma did imprison me and I'm angry about that so I don't want to see people paying lip service to the existence of these conditions or diversities I want to see people having a cup of tea with each other but not being scared to actually tell the truth about when things have got shit for them mm. and also not being scared to give advice to friends and family. Like, I think you should probably change how you manage that. I don't reckon you're handling that very well. I didn't like listening to that when I was younger, so I just went off partying to avoid that kind of advice. And now I'm lucky that I can 
hear it without getting defiant and value it and implement it. And I can also, with some day-to-day, week-to-week strategies, do it myself. So just get empowered and get active. That's what I think you've got to do. It's maybe it's like the stages of grief. Uh, maybe someone said this on your on your podcast before. I don't know. <laughs> I've just thought of it on the spot. But I think you pretty much go through the stages of grief. You know, you're in denial. I don't know what they are, so I shouldn't have started talking about it. You're in denial. You're, you're angry. You're and angry. Then, yeah. You're and upset, then and then you get to acceptance and all of that. Yeah. Denial, regret, acceptance broadly. And I don't think you can pause. Like it, you've got to push on through. <laughs> our final topic of conversation gav and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests is say quick fire general natter and chat about mental health so firstly how is your mental health good and unusually for me i don't need to talk about it at length (laughs) (laughs) we've done that already that's what the past hour and a half has been definitely vented in the past (laughs) half hour but with huge gratitude appreciation joy and peace i can say my mental health is pretty good thank you for asking excellent mate what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realized that the feelings you're having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind that could be in future (laughs) that could be in future (laughs) that's the first answer i've had when it's going to be in the future (laughs) it depends what mood i'm in whether i am this lucid and i I still experience delusion, so I'm going to have to answer... Coming soon. 30 plus. (laughs) (laughs) What things in life, mate, do you find that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, it could be social situations like you've said, it could be a sound, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Oh, I definitely haven't figured all of them out yet, and good luck to anyone trying to do so. That's difficult work. Lack of exercise, seasonal adjustment, Mm. and sleep are critical. Okay. Then, naturally enough, music. I've got to play it. I'll be doing it indefinitely, permanently. So those are the big ones for me. And what I find is if I sleep well, I exercise and it's summer and it's a sunny day and I've got a nice gig to look forward to and I'm rehearsing my singing, which luckily involves a lot of breathing techniques similar to meditation singing. When I've got those things in place, I don't struggle as much in my relationships and the professional and personal challenges. And as a final question, mate, and this is a broad one, it's a question of the show, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it. Well, we've spoken a bit about this because I've said earlier in the discussion that whilst it's sometimes difficult if you're a bit clever and more privileged because your mental health issues don't get picked up, it would be really good if more people of all backgrounds and in all different situations ethnicities all different people it would be better if all of them you know felt comfortable and and were sort of treated with respect in relation to mental health Mm. so yeah it's a tough one i do think it's easier for 
people with more privilege to access support and cope. So I would answer the question by saying target them. I don't really believe that privileged people set a necessary example and our footsteps in which the rest of the population fully diversely will follow. I think other groups where there's more room for improvement in mental health openness need their own role models within those groups. Mm. And I would love to see more role models within those groups and I, and I hope that that happens. So yeah, I think give those people the priority is my answer. And on that note, Gavin from Skeletons, thank you so much, mate, for coming on Behind the Mic and talking to me. Thank you very much. Sorry if I talk too much. It's been <laughs> an absolute problem, pleasure. Mate. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege and it's been lovely to be with you, mate. Thanks. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to Gav from Skeletons for being my special guest on this latest episode of Behind the Mic and for letting me go Behind the Mic with him. My favourite Skeletons track is their new single, Improve Your Groove, which will play us out, and I'll put all of Skeletons' streaming and social media links in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this series and the general podcast a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, you can write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, or support our Patreon, that's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent.